Good morning, Liquid Church. Great to see you guys. Yeah, hey, let's, let's hear it for all our campuses who are joining us around New Jersey, Church Online, Facebook. I see those of you who are at the beach. You're like, I'm going to church in my uh, swimsuit. Uh, I, I get it. I'm glad you're here for Memorial Day weekend, guys. We have a great uh, culminating message for our series, Girl Boss. But before we get into that, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And I need to tell you, next week, don't go to church at your campus, okay? Don't show up because we ain't going to be here. You know where we're going to be next Sunday? Ocean Grove. Yeah, down the Jersey Shore. There are Christians down there, believe it or not. Uh, but next Sunday, June 2nd, just, to, just so I can get everybody on the same page here, we have all six campuses coming together under one roof in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. That's about a, an hour and 10 minutes. We were down there this past week. We're going to have sun, just like we had all week. I just, I bet the Lord told me. Uh, we're going to have uh, a lot of fun on, on uh, you know, beach, boardwalk kind of stuff. But what we're going to have is one epic worship service in the Great Auditorium. Now, if you've ever been down there, this is actually a National Historic Place. It was built in 1894. Uh, Billy Graham has preached there. Uh, President Ulysses Grant has spoken there. It was founded as a Methodist camp meeting, and it's really one of a kind. Uh, it's about 6,000 seats, and so we're going to have all of our campuses under one roof, if you can kind of imagine that, uh, for one epic worship service. Now, that service is going to start at 11 a.m., so just one service, 11 a.m., but we want you to arrive around 10 a.m., and here's the reason why. Uh, because the parking in Ocean Grove was designed by the devil. <laughs> All right, if you've ever been down there, it's, it's pretty tight to find a spot. So the earlier you get there, the better. We're just going to kind of go next slide there, dudes. Uh, and, and here's the thing. Uh, there's plenty of seating, okay? And, and you get there, and you'll find a great seat. All of them, it, there's no problem with that. We got a giant pipe organ, and the, our bands, we're going to have like Liquid Worship United, all the campuses together. Uh, we're going to rip the roof off the place. Uh, but then uh, we're going to, yeah, we are. We're going to rip the roof off. It's going to be good. If you're from Ocean Grove Camping Association, I don't mean that literally. We're just, okay. Uh, what we're going to do then is we're going to culminate in beach baptisms at 2 o'clock. So the service starts at 11, and then we're going to have baptisms at 2 o'clock. We have about 170 people who are planning to take the plunge into the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And it's not too late uh, to sign up if you haven't already. The water, I I'm told, is like 84 degrees. That's not true. <laughs> I ain't going to lie to you, but it's going to be brisk. You're going to, those chills, it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to have wetsuits. It's going to be a lot of fun. So if you haven't, still have time to sign up, liquidchurch.com slash shore. And do make sure we're going to, you got these at all the campuses. Put this on your kind of like your, your, what is that thing called? Uh, rear view mirror, right? So that way... Our parking people can see you, direct you to some spots, but just get there early is all I'm saying. Cool? cool. Where are you going to be next Sunday? <laughs> down the shore. Down the shore. We're going down the shore. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, let's turn the page here uh, today. Um, I'm really excited because uh, have you enjoyed this series, Girl Boss? Have you been enjoying it? We really wanted to, uh, 
you know, as I've told you, I'm married to a girl boss. My wife, Colleen, super high capacity uh, wife, mom, leader in the marketplace. She's a small business owner. I'm tr we're trying to raise a girl boss. My daughter uh, is going to be 17 this year. And how do you, uh, as a woman, really unleash your God-given potential, the spiritual gifts you have, the talents? Um, we've been talking that at Liquid, we really have a passion to empower and unleash female leadership. Uh, we have women leaders at all levels of our church who have just blessed us beyond belief. And today, we have with us a leadership expert. Her name is Katie Cole. Uh, she has served as a, uh, not just a leadership expert, but a church consultant. She actually was executive director of Christ Fellowship uh, Church in, uh, in Florida. Uh, under uh, part of her, uh, she was part of the team that saw it grow from 2,000 to 20,000. So she's a brilliant uh, strategist. But more than that, she has a real pastoral heart and is the author of this book that I just finished reading myself. It's called Developing Female Leaders. And I love the subtitle, Navigate the Minefields and release the potential of women in your church. Because one of the things is, as a, as a church that wants to unleash the potential of both men and women together, we want to have best practices so that we can do that in an emotionally healthy way with eyes wide open. So we don't have the, some of the excesses of the world, but also some of the pitfalls you'll see like in the Me Too or Church Too kind of movement. So you're going to be blessed today to hear from Katie. I recommend this book to you. Uh, it's available on Amazon.com. Uh, a lot of our staff were reading it uh, together. And I just say it's one of those crossover books. Like maybe you're not in a church ministry, but you're a leader in the marketplace. Um, this just has some transferable practices, how you can really uh, platform and realize the potential of women in your organization. So Liquid Church, would you give a big old welcome to my friend Katie Cole? Come on out, Katie. We are blessed to have you. Thank you. Thank you for bringing the weather from Florida. My pleasure, my <laughs> pleasure. Thank you so much, Pastor Tim. Hi, Liquid Church. So nice to meet you. I'm Katie. I feel like we're friends already. <laughs> It's been so fun to worship with you, and I'm excited to learn from God's Word together. Um, but I just have to tell you before I get started, I just want you to know as a church how unique it is to have pastoral leadership who are so courageous in talking about this topic. Because in the church world, it's not a very easy topic to talk about. It's more controversial than you would think. And so Pastor Tim and the whole leadership team, I just really want to honor you and thank you for doing that. You all are blessed to have leaders like them really leading the way in this. So... Thank you so much. So when I was growing up, we didn't have sermon series about things like girl bosses. In fact, I grew up in the 80s, which I feel like in where our society was at the time, the culture was shifting from these really strong sort of gender roles from the 50s and 60s to sort of this equality mentality. So when I was in middle school and high school, I was told a lot that men and women are equal. Boys and girls were equal. I didn't have to be in cheerleading. I could also be on the basketball team. This was like revolutionary thoughts when I was growing up, especially I grew up in Montana, which is like 20 years behind the rest of the world. So that was the message. But the reality is in God's word, he tells us that we're not only of equal value, but we also have uniquenesses that he puts in us on purpose. And so I first realized this uh, after I had a son, because there's nothing like a little kid to do something naturally, intuitively, to awaken the idea that something might be built into him. I will never forget when he was about 10 months old and my husband and I were finishing up dinner and he was in his high chair and I had uh, bought a little toy hammer that when you waved it, it like lit up and had singing. Um, and so I gave it to him because I thought it would keep him entertained while we finished getting dinner ready. And he took that hammer and bam, bam, bam. And I was like, oh, no, you don't, you don't hit it. You, wa you wave it. And it like, you know, and of course my husband is like, it is a hammer that you bought him. 
And I was like, how did I buy a hammer and never think about hitting it against something? And this 10-month-old knows intuitively to like make noise and blow something up. <laughs> 10 years later, Pastor Tim was talking, I got to lead as the executive director at our church, a large multi-site church like this one, wonderful church, I love it. And I was stepping into that new role of executive director over all the campus pastors. We had six campuses at the time. And it was my first staff meeting with them. And I was a little nervous. Um, I knew these guys and we had worked together for a long time. So I wasn't nervous about that, but it was a big step. And I was really one of the few women leading at a high level in our church at that time. And so I went to my meeting and I got there a couple minutes early and I walk in with my little stuff all organized and I'm ready to do my thing. And in the middle of the meeting room, six grown men are in a wrestling pit, flip-flops flying, shirts being pulled. And I'm just thinking, I have worked in, in a professional life for like a long time. I've never once considered wrestling with my coworkers. And here they were having the best time. And of course, the question to me at that moment was, do I join in? Do I? So I did not join in. However, I, leading men has been such a fun, interesting thing, but I don't want them to stop that brotherhood, right? I want to be a sister who can be a part of things, but I don't want to kill anything that's there. And so as we kind of go through our life, we start to take these data points. You know, little boys like to hit things and guys like to wrestle. And if we're not careful, we take these data points. And because we have so much information coming at us in today's day and age, we start to create these big categories that we put data points and people in just to make it easier to kind of figure out how to navigate the world and make decisions. The problem is when we create these categories, we forget how unique God made each of us. And so we end up with these stereotypes and our cultures adopt them. And before we know it, we're kind of living with some rules that may or may not really fit us. So tell me if you've heard any of these statements. Women naturally love to cook. They're all great teachers. They love organizing and relationships. All women love kids. Shopping are very emotional. They don't really fix things. They're natural followers and love to come alongside. Whereas men are good at science, technology. Everyone is good at managing their finances. They problem solve. They're logical. They love all sports. They can fix anything and they're natural leaders. Now, these are stereotypes that come from our American culture. And the problem is that I actually know a lot of women who like a lot of these things and men who like a lot of these things. And if I'm not careful, I can start to think that all women and all men are like this. But the challenge is that most of us aren't. I see some of these things that I like, but some that I don't. And I, I'm sure there are guys here and vice versa. I actually could choose a couple things from this category. And the problem with stereotypes is that as a culture and even sometimes as communities of believers, we can start to unknowingly send the message, especially to young, growing believers, that you're not right if you don't fit in this category. And this is where you belong. And the problem is when you're a young person, you don't ever stop back and think, hey, I think that whole societal normative stereotype thing is off and I'm the one who's right. What happens when we're growing up, even growing up spiritually, is that we start to think that we're not right, that something is wrong with us, that God somehow made a mistake because we like things that don't fit into the box that everyone else seems to fit into. 
And so these confusing stereotypes are among all of us. And they change depending on where you grew up or the church you were in or the home you grew up. But we all carry them. We call them biases. We look at people based on their outside appearance. And it's not just about gender. It's about race. It's about age. It's about physical ability. It's about where you grew up in the country, your accent. Any of those things can bucket someone into a stereotype that may or may not fit them. Now, I think for us as believers, we have to remember that all of these stereotypes are older than all of us. None of these things are our fault. But as believers, they are our responsibility. And we have the choice to either keep them going or we can actually not look at what society says and instead do what God teaches us, which is to base our decisions about people on what God's word says. And so I'm super excited about this Girl Boss series, and I want to talk to you about three girl bosses that I love from the Bible. They have overstepped their own gender stereotypes, they've overcome some limitations, and they have things to teach all of us, not just about being women leaders, because I know as a woman sitting in congregation for the last 35 years, I've learned a lot from David and Daniel and Moses and John and Timothy. I learned from all of them. And so I want to encourage all of us, if you're a male or female, that these girl bosses, because they're in God's word, they have lessons that we can transfer into our life. But also, if you have women in your life that you want to encourage and challenge and see really fulfill the potential God has given them, there's going to be some great lessons for you as well. So we're going to start with girl boss number one, Queen Esther. Now, Esther is a serious girl boss. We know this because she has an entire book written about her in the Bible with her name on it. She's in the book of contents. So Esther is amazing. She actually rose to become queen of a country. She saved an entire generation of Jewish people from being annihilated. But Esther didn't start out quite that way. She has actually a very different beginning than the way we see her today. In fact, today there's actually a national holiday still named after her. All of the Jewish people around the world still celebrate Purim every spring in honor of Esther and the heroic acts that we're going to hear about today. But her beginnings were very different. She was an orphan who was raised by a distant cousin named Mordecai. She was a refugee living in exile in another country. She was the victim of sexual abuse. She was valued because she was pretty for her body and her looks more than anything else. She had to hide her ethnic identity for years. And more than anything, she was greatly underestimated by people, including herself. So here's what happened. King Xerxes got rid of his old wife, that's another whole story, and decided he wants a new bride. And so he, as it was done in those times, he collected all the young virgins of the land, put them all together, and he was going to pick a wife from the group, which if you think about it, is really kind of gross. But that's beside the point. So here's Esther. She's young. She's innocent. She's pretty. She gets collected. They spend months at the palace learning how to be a queen, doing perfumes, sitting in baths. It sounds like a spa, but if you think about what she's being groomed to do, it's not quite as glamorous as we like to think about it. But she spends all this months with all the guards and the teachers and the servants. And what's so interesting about what God says about her is in Esther 2 verse 15, this is what they think of her. Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. One translation said everyone who knew her. What that tells me is these guards and these teachers and these servants started to see that Esther was more than a pretty face. In fact, the king started to see it too. They started to see that she was a great woman of faith, that she was a survivor, a conqueror, that she was kind and loving. And Esther grew in influence. 
So the king named her queen, and that's our first lesson from this girl boss, is that despite the circumstances, great leaders grow great influence. Great leaders grow in great influence. In fact, many people think that if you have influence, that automatically qualifies you as a leader, and I kind of agree. So whether you're a boss, a parent, a spouse, a teacher, a coach, whatever your role, if you interact with humans of any kind, whether you're in authority or not, you really have the potential to influence them. And that's what Esther teaches us and helps us learn how to leverage. So a weird series of events take place. There's this evil guy named Haman, and he somehow convinces the king to get rid of all the Jews, to kill them. Now, the king doesn't realize that Esther is a Jew, and so he signs the edict. And then her cousin Mordecai, rightly so, kind of starts freaking out because all of his people are about to be killed. So he's outside the palace gates, sort of having a little workup over here, Queen Esther is up in the palace, not connected, but the servants and the guards who respect and love Esther start sending secret messages between Mordecai and her, unbeknownst to the king. Mordecai explains what happens. Esther asks questions. Mordecai comes back. And finally, Mordecai says, Esther, you have got to go to the king. You have got to save your people. And Esther says, I don't really think so. Uh, I am not the kind of girl that asks a guy like that for something like this. I am not the right person. I wouldn't know how to talk about it. He would never respect me. I would probably be killed. It's against the law anyway. Da 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 da. I am not your person. So interesting. Esther shrinks back. In fact, we see this in women all over the place, not just women, but men and minority, all sorts of people, but particularly in Esther and particularly in females growing in leadership. We have this phenomena called the sticky floor, is what we call it today. You've probably heard of the glass ceiling. You can't break through the glass ceiling, but the sticky floor are the things that hold women back because it keeps them down. And it's actually all internal. It's the things she says to herself in her mind about what she can and cannot do. It's feeling like an imposter, like you don't really belong, that if someone found out who you really were, what you really were capable and not capable of, you probably would be let go of whatever influence you have. Esther has the sticky floor, and it's holding her back from this amazing opportunity to serve and to help, which is normally so like her. But as Esther shrinks back, Mordecai steps in. And he says in Esther 4.13, Do not think, because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And who knows, but you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Cousin Mordecai calls her up, but he doesn't call her up with a bunch of fanfare. He calls her up by helping her focus on the Lord and seeing that she is positioned by God. You see, many times we think of ourselves in terms of the sticky floor. I can't do this. I can't do that. I've never done it before. What if I fail? How if it doesn't work? What will people think? La, 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 la. And Mordecai is saying, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter what's going on in here. It matters what's going on in here. What does God say about you? And Mordecai is helping her see that God says, Esther, look around you. Look at all that God has done around you to put you in this time and place. You are the person. So Esther shakes off the sticky floor, and she digs down into her faith, and she finds her courage, and she replies back in Esther 4.15, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. I love that of all the actions she could take 
and do first. She calls people to fast for her because she knows who's going to help her bring deliverance. When this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Make no mistake, Esther was still fearful, but she stepped up and took action. Girl boss Esther teaches us, don't shrink back, but lead forward in faith. And I'm telling you right now, whatever it is that God is calling you, don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. Don't listen to the voices here. Lead forward in faith knowing that God has equipped and positioned you to be able to do it. Okay, our second girl boss is in Exodus chapter 2. You may have heard of Miriam. Uh, you may not have, but you've probably heard of her younger brother, Moses. So Moses was the leader of the Israelites that crossed through the Red Sea with the parting of the ocean and brought them into the promised land. But Miriam is his older brother, or sorry, older sister. And so before God saved the Israelites through Moses, he was a brand new baby boy born into a terrible situation because the Israelites were in Egypt and they were slaves and oppressed. In fact, they'd become so populated that the very insecure Pharaoh had decided to keep the Israelite population controlled. He's going to annihilate and kill all the baby boys ever born in the kingdom evermore. And so Moses is born into this family and he has quite a girl boss mom, by the way, who hides him for three months. Can you imagine hiding a newborn baby for three months? I have a new puppy at home. We can't hide him for five minutes, like a new baby. And so, but she does, she hides him for three months. And we pick up about Miriam in Exodus chapter two, verse three. But when she, Moses's mother, could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister, Miriam, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and so she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister Miriam asks Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, let's just pause right there for a second. Let's think about this. So Miriam is less than 10 years old. They think probably around 8 years old. She sees her mom have to give up her baby boy in a basket down the river. So Miriam says, I'm going to go watch and see what happens to him. So she peers along, and then she sees Pharaoh's daughter, and she thinks, I'm going to kind of incognito become one of her servants. This girl has some guts. So she hangs out with Pharaoh's daughter, and then Pharaoh opens up and sees the baby. And so Miriam says, I should say something. So Miriam says... Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Smart question. Well, yes, go, Pharaoh's daughter answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to the mother, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Miriam, talk about a problem solver. Baby in the thing, Pharaoh, let me pretend I'm a servant. Hey, I'll go get his mom. And so now her mom gets her baby back and she's paid for it by Pharaoh's daughter. So we know the baby is protected. I love this girl. She's smart, she's savvy, she's a problem solver. She's daring, she'll take a risk. She's gonna lean in and not lean back. Miriam does not have a sticky four problem. She is full of gumption. I love that. Is that a great word, gumption? I feel like that totally describes this eight-year-old girl. You might know an eight-year-old girl who's got some gumption. They wear it strong and proud. So we see gumption show up in Miriam's life 
all throughout her life. When Moses comes back and leads the Israelites through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land, Miriam is right there beside him. And you know she's got some advice for him. It's not recorded, but we know any older sister with some gumption had some advice for Moses. So she's right there with him. In fact, when they come through the Red Sea and land into the desert and all the water crashes over Pharaoh's army, Miriam is so overwhelmed at God's provision, she starts singing. And when a leader starts doing something, guess what happens? People follow. So before long, on the other side of the Red Sea, Miriam is the first female worship leader recorded. She's leading over 2.4 million people in worship and praise and party for God and all that he gave. Isn't that amazing? She is awesome. But when you have gumption, it also comes with a shadow side, as any gift does. And so we see Miriam again show up in Numbers chapter 12. Now, at this point, the Israelites have been wandering in the desert for about a year, and they have gotten, well, let's just say, a little cranky. They're complaining about everything. Stuff isn't going the way they thought it would. They kind of prefer to go back to Egypt, which is a big mistake. Don't ever go backwards. But they want to. And so Miriam starts to assess the situation, as leaders with gumption often do. And she's measuring it, and she's wondering how Moses is doing, and she's wondering why they're not doing this, and it sure seems like he needs to stop and ask for directions, and he just won't. And blah, 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 blah. They don't have enough to eat. There's not enough variety. Where are the vegetables? She's wondering all of these things that any good, for strong female leader with gumption would ask. And so she starts getting critical. She starts thinking that she might be able to do a better job. She starts wondering why God still has Moses in leadership when she would clearly move this thing along in efficiency, pack the daper bag right, get it out the door, get there on time. She's ready to make it happen. So this is what happens in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron, their other brother, began to talk against Moses. They're criticizing the leader God has appointed. They begin to talk about Moses, now watch this, because of his Cushite wife. All right, my sisters, can I just say something? When we have gumption and we're irritated at our leader or maybe God who put the leader in place, why is it that we tend to blame the other women? This wife has nothing to do with this. She's like Moses' wife. She's not even a Jew. She has nothing to do with Miriam's issues. And yet Miriam, in her pride, turns to blaming her. But her real issue comes next. Her real heart is revealed. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? I am a great leader too. Do you remember my worship service? It was like the biggest one we've ever had. I am awesome. Why do we think that the Lord will only speak through Moses? And the Lord heard this. The Lord stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. Now, I'm a girl with a little bit of gumption, I'll admit. And I got to say, when I read this, uh, I have a feeling Aaron was scared because he's kind of that kind of guy. But I have a sneaky suspicion that Miriam is like, I bet I'm about to get promoted. I'm coming up. God's finally heard me. He's assessed the situation and agrees with me. So she goes up, and when they both step forward, God says, listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions, and I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. With him, I speak face to face. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them. Ugh. Burned against them, and he left. When the cloud lifted from the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Now, leprosy is a horrible disease. 
But it's even worse when you live in a community like the Israelites because it's a communicable disease. It spreads easily. So to protect all the rest of the Jews, anyone with leprosy would have to live way outside the camp and be isolated. So for anyone, that is a horrible way to live. But for a leader with gumption who likes to tell people what to do, that is like a death sentence. Now, if you're a fellow working mom like I am, probably right now a week outside the camp sounds pretty good. (laughs) I understand that. But... In this day and age, it was actually almost impossible to survive by yourself in the wilderness. You see, gumption is a gift from the Lord. The leadership capacity that all of us possess, it's a gift, but it comes with a shadow side. The sin of pride had taken hold of Miriam's heart. She wanted more. She wanted to do it better. She wanted to be the boss. And she didn't just want to be the boss like Moses. She wanted to be the boss like God. And that's what got her into trouble. In my work with leaders, especially in teams and businesses and organizations, I always have this one guy that comes up to me, and he's trying to, like, be nice, and I get that. But he comes up and he says, I just love working with women leaders. They have no ego. And I always just think, well, either you're working with someone stuck on the sticky floor, or you haven't read your Bible. Because women struggle with pride just like guys do. It just sometimes shows up a little different. And part of what we have to make sure we're doing is not buying coffee mugs with pride written on the outside. We're keeping our hearts humble to what God has really called us to do. So Moses, who God actually describes in this passage as more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth, Moses prays for Miriam. In his humility, he prays for Miriam in her pride. Think about that. She's criticizing him. And this is his response. God listens to Moses, and he heals Miriam. But she still has the issue of pride on her heart, because the leprosy isn't really what's got Miriam held back from really being in her calling. It's her heart condition. And so God says that Miriam must spend seven days outside the camp. It's not a death sentence, but it is probably going to keep her to the point of breaking, because he wants to break her pride and remind her that she is not in control. And so Miriam teaches us that God decides who leads. God decides who leads. But he always offers a path of restoration through humility. He always offers a path of restoration, but it's through humility. Leaders, listen to me. There are going to be times when God must break your pride. He's not breaking your spirit, and he's not breaking your gumption, but he does want to break the thing that's actually causing you to want more than what he has given you. The only route through that is through humility. It can't be about amping up. It can't be about figuring out a higher level of leadership. It can't be about bossing more people around and doubling down and getting nitpicky and micromanaging, which is how it usually comes out, right? He's saying the process to breaking your pride It's a loving act of kindness from the Lord to restore you. In fact, that's exactly what happens to Miriam. For the seven days that she's out there, they could have moved on without her. I probably would have wanted to do that. I don't like those kind of people either. I would have wanted, they all stay put because they love and respect her and they honor her leadership. They stay put. Miriam is healed. But not only is her body healed, her heart is healed. And she comes back into the community. She's restored into leadership. And she's mentioned in the Bible at her death, the entire country mourned for her when she died. Isn't that amazing? So Miriam teaches that, that God decides who leads, but he always offers a path of restoration through humility. 
So Esther helped us overcome the sticky floor. Miriam helps us overcome our pride. But our third girl boss takes place in the New Testament. Now, in the book of Romans, the New Testament church at this time is really starting to take off. The disciples have spent time with Jesus. He's now in heaven. They're out spreading the good news, starting churches all over the place. But when an apostle starts a church, he moves on to start another church, and these guys start to have some trouble. And they didn't have email or text. You couldn't, like, send a boomerang message. You had to, like, write a letter that was really long and send it with a courier. They couldn't even, like, put a stamp on it and get it there. They had to have a courier take it. And so Moses, or sorry, uh, Paul is looking for someone who is going to be able to take this letter. And this is where we meet Phoebe. Now, I don't actually watch the show, friends, but whenever I hear the name Phoebe, I think of her. And so I just had to put that up. This is actually the Phoebe that we're going to talk about. So Paul, who is the great apostle of the New Testament, started more churches than anyone, wrote most of the letters, like an amazing, amazing pastoral apostolic leader. He is in the city of Corinth. And outside that city is a little town called Sancria, where Phoebe lives. Now, Corinth is a busy, bustling town. And so um, while he is there, he's actually having trouble with the church in Rome. He started that church there. And now he's going to write the letter to Rome called the Book of Romans. And in it, he's narrating a bunch of theological things. He's telling them how they should live with one another. He's correcting some leadership issues that they have. He's encouraging them. He's reminding them how much he loves them and that he's praying for them. And the role of taking this letter is not just about this dangerous trek, although this journey is hard. They're not exactly sure whether this journey was taken by land or by sea, but they think it was probably by land, which means that whoever needed to go and take this letter had to be able to go in a caravan, had to be physically strong, had to have perseverance, had to have like no fear because there's marauders and raiders and all sorts of people that would want to rob from you. So it's a very strong person. It's probably someone with wealth because the church isn't going to like sponsor this. There's no like, you know, liquid church Amex card that's going to make this happen. You had to like have your own money. So it had to be a person of wealth or a person of means. It had to be someone strong, someone courageous. It had to be someone spiritually mature. But more than anything, it had to be someone who could handle reading the letter to the church and answering the tough questions. Because the Roman church was in a little bit of a crisis. There was conflict happening all over. So whoever was taking this letter actually had to be able to read it, not just give the words, but explain what Paul really meant by it, and then be able to handle the questions and help the church apply this truth to their situation. It was a very critical role. And this is where Paul looks out among the church, and he selects Phoebe. Read in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Now, Phoebe meets all the qualifications that Paul is looking for. First of all, he describes her as his sister, which is a very endearing term for Paul. When he talks about male leaders throughout the Bible, he calls them all his brothers. And his favorite metaphor of the church is the family. Brothers and sisters co-laboring together in safety, in mutual respect, in partnership, bringing their gifts, having joy and fun and friendship, just like brothers and sisters would. He said, this is Phoebe. She's like a sister to me, a sister in Christ. Welcome her. Second, she was a servant. 
This word is often translated as a deaconess or a minister, which means that she probably had some level of authority or leadership in the church. They were entrusting the spiritual care of people to her. She helped make decisions. She helped make ministry happen. And third, he calls her a saint or a patron saint. So she was a patron, a helper, probably a benefactor. We don't know a lot about Phoebe, but from some of the text around in this letter, we can tell that she was probably a businesswoman and very successful at it. Likely she was single. We're not sure if she was always single or perhaps a widow, but we're pretty sure she isn't married. In fact, her business was so successful that she had a house big enough that the church in Sincrea met at her house, and she hosted them all the time and cared for the people. That's who we're talking about with Phoebe. And beyond that, as a businesswoman, she's a great communicator, great negotiator. She has all the gumption that Paul is looking for, for someone to take this treacherous trek, talk about the letter that he's written, explain what he means, and then go to all the house churches all throughout Rome and repeat the process over and over again. A servant's heart who's willing to leave her business, her friends, her family behind to fulfill the, the opportunity that Paul is presenting to her. Now, Phoebe's awesome. She doesn't shrink back. She doesn't overreach. She just simply says, yes, I'll do it. Paul gives her the opportunity. He opens the door, and she says yes. Because at the end of the day, what Paul saw in Phoebe is our greatest lesson from her. She teaches us that to be trustworthy. We are to be trustworthy. Because when we can be trusted by our leaders, they can open up doors of opportunity for us. But she's not just trustworthy with the task. She's also trustworthy in being first. Because it was unusual for a woman to do this kind of leadership role. It was unusual to send her with scripture. It was unusual for her to travel by herself. It was unusual for the early church to have women leaders. And so Paul is saying, I'm actually not only entrusting you with the task, I'm entrusting you to go first and to handle that well. I think sometimes as leaders, it's easy to think that if we have to go first, something must be wrong. If I'm the first person who looks like me, who talks like me, is my age, is uh, from the experiences I'm in, from the place of the world that I'm from, has overcome the things I've had to over. If I'm the first, something must be wrong because people like me don't do this. But I'm telling you, if you are being called to lead, People like you do this because by definition, leaders are people who go first. They are the people who step into the new. They are the people who go for something even if they haven't seen it done before. I feel like this idea that Phoebe is teaching us to say yes, even if we have to go first. Yes, even if we are the first one. I feel like this describes my leadership. If I could tell you the number of times I took a new job or a new task or a new opportunity or invited to come and do something like this, I usually have in my mind that Sesame Street song, if you've heard it, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things just doesn't belong, I often feel like I don't belong. And it would be easy to let that oddness or being a misfit help me pull back or listen to that sticky floor. But Paul is saying what God says, which is that if you are being called by God, you probably will be the first one, but do it anyway. It's not a reason to say no. It's actually affirmation of your leadership ability to say yes. So that was what Phoebe teaches us, to say yes, even if you discover you're the first one. You might be the first one in your family who's following Jesus. You might be the first of your friends who's getting clean and sober. 
You might be the first mom in your neighborhood to actually host a Bible study for the other people and turn conversations to a spiritual nature. You might be the first minority in your job to take a promotion. You might be the first female executive in your industry. I don't know what your first is, but I can almost guarantee you if you're living for the Lord, there's going to be some firsts in your life, and so get used to it. But she teaches us that we can be trustworthy to be first if we stay close to the Lord and just say yes. When I think of these three amazing girl bosses, I can actually see myself in all of them. I have struggled with the sticky floor. There have been days where I've said no and missed out on opportunities that I saw someone else step in with probably less experience and less uh, giftedness and definitely less passion. And those lessons are hard. I don't ever want to miss an opportunity again because I got in my own head. I only want to say yes because God says that this is the door he's got for me. I've been someone who has struggled with pride and been humbled by the Lord. It is not easy. It is very humbling. The word humble actually comes from the same word root as the word humiliation. It is not easy to have gumption and be humbled. But I'm telling you, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, we correct our issues with him, we fix it with the other people, he wants to restore us. And I'm so thankful to have come through those situations. And I've also had doors of opportunity opened where I said yes and I stepped in as the misfit. I'm wondering if you have the experiences of these three women. Whoever you are, whatever circumstances you find them in, they're lessons for all of us to be able to know how to follow God in our calling and to live fully. So to my sisters, I want to give a couple challenges. First of all, I want to encourage you to not worry about feeling like a misfit, but to say yes whenever an opportunity opens. I remember being a stay-at-home mom with a little baby, feeling like I had a teaching gift I wanted to do something with. I love to communicate. I love to talk. I have a million and one ideas. And I just felt like there might be something I would want to say one day. But I had no idea what that would be. That's 15 years ago. And I remember holding a baby and nursing him with my Bible open and just saying, God, I have done the Miriam route where I have overreached and tried to make this happen for myself, and I don't want to do that anymore. I'm done with that. And so I promise if you ever bring me an opportunity to teach, I will always say yes. I will always say yes. And so the first one took a year. It was at a weird little women's conference at a very weird church in the mountains of Montana. I can call us weird because I'm from there. I spoke at a college where everyone sat behind a computer screen, and all I could see was like their eyebrows furling at me. I have been at mom's groups, I've been at neighborhood things, but I've always said yes. And it is amazing when you start saying yes. It just allows you to open through more doors and you step through it and it opens more doors and you step through it and God opens more doors. So don't hold back. Don't wait for something up here. Say yes to the thing that God has for you right here. When he opens a door, just say yes and see what God is going to do with it. Trust him to take care of you in it. Now to my brothers... I've got a little something for you too. Because these lessons apply to you, but there is also something different about our culture where women don't often get the same opportunities that men get. And one of the things you might not realize is when we grow up as little girls, much of the gumption that you see in some of these leaders, we were actually taught was wrong to have. And so there are a lot of things that we have to overcome in order to step into opportunities that you maybe have never questioned for yourself.
And so your role as our brothers is unique, and it's special, and it's for such a time as this. And so it could be that you have an Esther in your life, a woman that you know that you can tell is positioned by God and has ability and has influence. For, for some reason, she keeps stepping back. Maybe you're supposed to be a Mordecai. Maybe you're supposed to come and step into her life and help her see what she has a hard time seeing for herself, seeing that she has influence and seeing that she is positioned by God. And this is the perfect opportunity for her to say yes. You can say that like nobody else can say that to her. Don't be fooled when she's talking about all the kids and all the things and da-da-da-da-da. Don't be fooled by all that. That's smoke screens. If you see a woman who has ability and calling and opportunity and God has positioned her and you see it in her, call her out in it. She needs her big brothers to come alongside and help her see what she cannot see. She can do this, but she needs your help. She needs you to be a Mordecai. Now, you might be a brother who's got a Miriam. I'm so sorry, because <laughs> she's probably saying a few things about you. That's the way it goes. Gumption, run amok. But let me tell you, do what Moses did. He didn't correct her. He didn't fire her. He didn't talk about her behind her back. He didn't shun her from the meeting. He recognized that what was happening was not a leadership issue. It is a spiritual issue. And so what did he do? As a humble man, he started praying for her. If you've got a Miriam in your life, it's time to do battle on her behalf, your sister. You see potential in her. You see what can happen. She's caught up in pride. It's a spiritual stronghold. The only way we fight against spiritual strongholds is to go to battle on our knees. Will you be the brother that prays for the sisters who are stuck? You can be a, more, a Moses who helps free a Miriam. And then you will be able to leverage her leadership in what you're doing. Help her get over it. And you might be a Paul. Maybe you're a leader that has a lot of influence, a lot of resources, a lot of opportunity, a lot of people that you're connected with. And you have opportunities come all the time. You get to open doors, accolades, encourage people, invite them to things. You have a lot of opportunity at your fingertips. I want to encourage you to not just go to the people you've always gone to. When I talked earlier about stereotypes, it's not our fault. It's not your fault. But especially as a believer, it's our responsibility. We can help change our culture. In fact, God wants us to. We are to be culture setters, not culture reactors. And so you can help change the culture by looking for the Phoebes in your life, looking for the women that are trustworthy, looking for the women that have the ability, looking for the women who already are successful. Look for them. They are out there. They might be a little shrunk down. They might be a little camouflaged. They might be holding back because they're not sure if you actually want her to be fully herself, but she is there. Be a Paul and open up the doors of opportunity for her. She needs your help. She can't open them for herself. Those are opportunities that only you can open for her. Be a Paul for the Phoebes in your life. One of my favorite passages of scripture as I start to talk about this now is John 17, where Jesus uh, is actually at the end of his life. It's the worst day of his life. He's on his way to be crucified. He talks with a bunch of people. He does a few things, and he prays a few prayers. His very last prayer is for us. It's for the disciples who are yet to come. He's praying for us. And he doesn't pray that we have great faith, and he doesn't pray that we have great courage, and he doesn't pray that we conquer down things, and we pray a lot, and we open a lot of churches, blah, blah, blah. He prays that we would be unified. He prays that we would be one like he and his father are one. And he actually says that if 
we can come together in unity and oneness and lead the church like that, the world has no option but to rise up and take notice. And that is how they will know that he loves them. That is how they will know that he sent Jesus to save them if we work together. Now, I'm very concerned about our society. I'm obviously very passionate about female leaders, but I feel like our society is in a pendulum swing. We say patriarchy is bad. It's not all about men, and I agree. But they're swinging the pendulum totally to the other side, and they're saying it's all about women. The future is female. Listen, Christians, believers, church, we know Jesus told us the future is not female. The future is together. We have got to pair up as brothers and sisters and be the family that God has called us to be. That is how people will know how much he loves them if we work together. So as I close, I want to just pray for you. Pray for my sisters. I'm praying for my brothers. I'm praying that we would not shrink back. Any of us, we would step forward in faith, not just for ourselves, but for the leaders around us. Because it's when we all fulfill our calling together in unity that we will see God's kingdom come here on earth like it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for this time. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. God, I pray for my sisters. Would you give them courage? Would you give them vision? Would you speak to them in their inner heart? God, help them to see how much you love them, how you have gifted them. Help them to release their abilities and passions and gifts in the kingdom. Help them to build up this church here locally, God, that we might see a great revival here in this area. And God, I pray for my brothers. For those people that have been given an opportunity and advancement and resources, God, would you make them spiritually aware to the women you have put in their lives, the women who need them as a big brother to open a door, to unlock a door, to be able to give them resource and opportunity, help them to encourage them, give them the right words, help it to just be the most amazing expression of a church family, God, because we're working together, we're living out your call, we're in unity. Thank you so much for today, Lord. Thank you for these great girl bosses as our example. God, we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.